0: And welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine, Britain's best-selling history magazine. I'm Ellie Cawthorne. Today we've got the final episode in our series on Britain's greatest prime ministers.
2: Hello and welcome to our new series profiling some of Britain's most important prime ministers. I'm Matt Elton. Deputy Editor of BBC History magazine. It's 300 years since Robert Walpole became Britain's first Prime Minister. To mark this seismic moment in the nation's political history, we asked a series of leading historians to each nominate the two leaders that they believe achieved most during their time in Number 10. So I'm delighted to be joined by Sir Anthony Seldon, who is the author of a new book, The Impossible Office, which charts the history of the Prime Minister, and also uh, the presenter of a new radio series on BBC Radio 4. Uh, Anthony, I wondered if I could start by asking you, you're someone who, as you say in your book, has spent decades thinking about and writing about Prime Ministers. What do you think is our most common misconception about The Office?
3: That The Office is And very nice to be on. By the way, uh, that the office is getting more and more powerful. You know, I was at school in the 70s, and my A-level politics essays were about the Prime Minister becoming presidential, went to uni, came to London, did an was at LSE, did a doctorate. Uh, the, the, the supposition was that the PM wasn't very powerful back then. Um, why not? Because the, you know, there was a monarch. Um, and that the PM has become steadily more powerful. Uh, the office has got bigger and bigger. That bigger means good, and that now you know we have uh, you know, pick out whoever you want: um, Thatcher, Blair, uh, Johnson, in effect, to president. And of course, it's absolute nonsense.
2: So, if we head back to the very first days of of the office, when and why did the post emerge?
3: Because uh, Britain had its traumas in the 17th century, a civil war uh, that resulted in the execution of the king, revolution, uh, replacement of the monarchy in 1660. But um, it, it, it still wasn't a constitutional monarchy, but it was moving from an absolute monarchy, as we saw, for example, Uh, in France with Louis XIV, it was moving in the direction of a constitutional monarchy. Then in 1688, 1689, the Catholic James II replaced by William of Orange and Mary. Uh, uh, And again, uh, Parliament becoming more and more powerful and, uh, uh, and limiting, restricting the freedom of maneuver of the monarch. Uh, and then in 1714, the Hanoverians, George I, didn't speak uh, English and German, for goodness sake, uh, on the crown uh, of uh, Britain, uh, very uh, upsetting alien to many people. And by now, we've had uh, the Septennial Act, the Parliament coming into effect every seven years, three years uh, before that, then seven years and a sense that power had moved decisively in the direction of a constitutional monarchy and uh, that the parliament uh, uh, was essential. And George I needed their own person in parliament to do their business, to get their um, acts through and to get their finance through. And this was the beginning. So in 1721, he asked Robert Walpole, uh, to be first thought of the Treasury. Then, now, on the 3rd of April, when it happened, it wasn't a big deal. There weren't fireworks uh, over uh, London. It was just an event that, that uh, achieved bare minimum of notice in the press of the day. And, of course, there had been antecedents. Look at Thomas Cromwell, Thomas Woolsey before him, uh, or uh, William Robert Cecil under Elizabeth I, the figures with many of the powers of uh, the prime minister, but their authority rested on the monarchy, on the crown. And that was uh, different because Walpole and his successors depended on the crown, yes, but also on parliament and progressively on parliament.
2: Your book opens with an imagined conversation between Walpole, the first Prime Minister, and Johnson, the incumbent, the current Prime Minister. Um, What do you think we would make of Robert Walpole if we could talk to him today? Well, of
3: course, in that conversation, uh, Boris Johnson is talking to him. It's not imaginary. it, it, It really happened. He really did invite Walpole along on the 3rd of April 2021 to this celebration dinner with just both men and I think we would see many echoes uh, uh, of him in uh, Boris Johnson. They went to the same school, Eton. Well, <laughs> That's a surprise. Uh, they went uh, on to university together. They were big men, larger than life, extrovert characters, uh, manipulators of media, manipulators of other people, lovers of extravagance. Gansa. They both lived at Downing Street with a woman who Walpole later married and, and Boris Johnson's fiancée, Carrie Simmons. They were both 25 years younger, both nearly died in their first year in office. Both came to power through the chance event of the South Sea bubble with Walpole and Brexit for Johnson. And without that, that they wouldn't have happened. So I think we'd find it very recognisable, Matt, in answer to your question. We'd think, blow me down. <laughs> uh,
2: which is which? Uh, and yet, you know, th- th- there are differences too. Do you think it says something that they are so comparable? Yes, uh, it does. Uh, and uh, getting back to your first question about about the... Head of
3: government seeming to be so uh, powerful. I mean, in many ways, this is, comes out in their conversation in the book. Uh, Boris Johnson recognises, to his to his chagrin, uh, to his discomfort, that actually Walpole had many powers uh, that he didn't have. I mean, and they included being Chancellor of the Exchequer, a post the PM had till eighteen forty one. He was in charge of the Treasury. I mean, what would Johnson give to be in charge of the Treasury? Uh, Walpole and his successors were leaders of the House of Commons. They dominated Parliament. They dominated elections. They dominated patronage. Uh, They oversaw foreign policy. They kept the country uh, solvent and, uh, and safe. And... Uh, the idea that uh, George I, the monarch of the day, was, was all powerful is absolute nonsense in many ways. In many ways, Elizabeth II has far more authority uh,
2: over the country, certainly, than George I had. Why was there a period of uncertainty immediately after Walpole? And how did that uncertainty get resolved? Well, we we always project backwards. This is the great thing that students
3: recognize at some point when they're studying uh, history that 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 it wasn't all <laughs> preordained and inevitable. And looking back over 300 years, we could see, well, this is the first prime minister, 300 years ago, very splendid, uh, a steady path to the present day. But of course it wasn't at all like that. I mean, uh, Walpole, had he not survived for 21 years, the office might have disappeared. Had he died, uh, then maybe there would have been a resort to earlier uh, arrangements. And after him, there were a succession of 12 prime ministers over the following 41 years, until 1783, um, most of them very forgettable. Pelham is remembered because he was very long-serving. Uh, who followed uh, Walpole, part one? But but you know, uh, and Lord Chatham, father father of Pitt, Chatham Pitt the elder, father of Pitt the younger, brilliant uh, figure, commemorated uh, throughout this country and and North America, very well known as leader, brilliant foreign leader, but not 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 as first Lord of the Treasury. Uh, and North is known to many people because he was. Uh, the figure when Britain uh, lost the 13 colonies and became the United States of America. But you know, most people, frankly, will be pushed to name most of those uh, figures. And, and it could have gone uh, either way, the office could have been lost. And it wasn't till Pitt the Younger in 1783 was asked by George George, who was fed up with it, with a whole series of people he'd asked, who'd come in, he'd succeeded his. Um, grandfather in 1760, determined age 22 to be his own man, although not to take it back into an absolute monarchy, but to be a more active constitutional monarch and picking uh, PMs and administrations far more. But he then fell back on, on Pitt, who was there for most of the time until 1806, As the second longest-serving prime minister of the 55 in history, and it was again that very length of uh, of service of Pitt the Younger that just consolidated the office. When he died in 1806, there was really no going back. The office was a regularized part of the unwritten constitution.
2: Are there commonalities that we can trace across this 300-year period of the kind of people in office and the experience they have of it? Yes.
3: uh, They're all all ambitious. Uh, Most of them, not all of them, deny that they're ambitious. I mean, uh, I think of that. They all have exaggerated notions of their own ability, or most of them have had uh, ability to make uh, changes. Uh, They almost all come in and trash their predecessors without quite knowing what what they wanted to do. So Lloyd George knew he didn't want to be like the feckless Asquith during the war, and Lloyd George's successors knew they didn't want to be like him with his scandals and uh, 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 and mistress uh, uh, and wanted to have a more high-minded. and Churchill didn't then want to be like uh, Baldwin and, uh, and Chamberlain, and Att- Attlee didn't want to be like... Uh, didn't want to be magisterial uh, like Churchill, and, uh, and then the successors of Attlee didn't want to be mice and, and, and introverts like, like Attlee. You know, all the way through to, to Thatcher, didn't want to be like those feckless, again, uh, Labour leaders, Wilson and Callaghan, who led the country into decline and, and let the unions
2: uh, get all over uh, the economy in her eyes. And what are the things that you think a prime minister needs to have in order to be successful? They all served for five or more years. You can't,
3: you know, you can't be a great PM without that. They all had a, a, a clear agenda or had the agenda thrust on them, like a, a often a war Napoleon or First World War or Second World War. Or they devised their, their own agendas like Gladstone. Uh, Peel uh, uh, and Thatcher, they've uh, all uh, benefited from uh, the economy. Uh, They've all had uh, landslide victories, all bar one, Pitt the younger in parliament for more than 20 years. Now, now these are the factors that have made the great, I mean, great PMs essentially are made by great historic events. So, uh, and that's just simply the way it is. But then there are factors, Matt. You know, you need to, they all need to have a moral seriousness. Uh, they all need to have an iron will. Uh, they all need to have a strong constitution. Uh, they all need to be highly intelligent because you can't cope. They all need to be emotionally very intelligent uh, and to be even-tempered. You can't get by as a Gordon Brown or an Anthony Eden uh, shouting uh, at, at people. It, 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 it doesn't work. Uh, in that way, uh, you need to be able to tell a story. To, to You're the nation's storyteller. You need to be able to teach the nation. You need to be a, a good or, orator and use that that pulpit. But, you know, you can have all of those, better than anyone, but if you're not, don't have those first factors. If, you know, you, you don't have a, a working majority, you're going to be fighting all the time in Parliament. If you're not there for long enough, you're not going to be able to, to make a mark. It takes time to bed down. Uh, change if you're not there at a great historic moment you know you might be a very proficient prime minister steering the country uh, uh, along a nice country lane but uh, history is made by by the strong currents
0: still to come on
3: the history extra podcast And what's happened is the chancellor has become more and more important. The foreign secretary has become less and less important. The PM's tried to be foreign secretary with sometimes disastrous results, Suez, uh, Iraq, uh, Libya in 2011. We need to reset the PM.
1: This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match
0: That's BetterHelp H E L P dot com slash history extra.
2: So it's partly about um, history presenting you with a with a challenge and you rising to meet it. Is that a fair a fair sort of assessment? Yeah,
3: or, or failing to rise to it, and it's also about your timing. I mean, had. Uh, Lloyd George died as he could easily have done in September uh, 1916 from the uh, influenza plague. He was in Manchester Town Hall and was taken profoundly ill, uh, and uh, one of his private secretaries thought he would not make it. Um, Then, had that happened, as almost happened uh, to uh, Boris Johnson from COVID 19 exactly 100 years later, had it happened to Lloyd George, Churchill might have taken over. It would have been a disaster for Churchill to have taken over in 1918, as it might have been for if Thatcher had taken over in 1970 or 1965, when uh, Heath, who did take over, became party leader. Um, she wouldn't have judged it then. So to be a
2: great PM is also about, you know, it's about the luck, you know, to be there at the right, the right person at the right time. Um, Something that you do in the book is you split prime ministers into a series of categories. Rather than attempting to rank the prime ministers, you split them into certain groups. At the top, we have what you call landmark prime ministers. Um, Are there any among those, not to give away the whole list, are there any among those that you'd like to highlight as being particularly strikingly good in some way? Well, so they were all really good in their own way.
3: And we've had, in the same way with American presidents or French presidents, uh, people love, uh, but not Chinese premiers, um, uh, people love to rank because there's only one possible um, victor who is the current person. But, you know, our people, uh, uh, and, and in our country uh the very last person that people would normally vote for would be the the current person because we tend to denigrate what we see in the present um to some extent uh but you know it just highlights the absurdity of ranking people it isn't like ranking the greatest films of all times or the greatest center forward in football or goal attack in in netball, or the greatest uh, lead guitarist, because, you know, we can listen back. And if we're talking about the greatest cricketers, we can see what these great Grayson and Bradman and Hutton, uh, you know, what they achieved. You can't do that. We can't relive the life of a premiership. And therefore, to grade them from one to 55 is Great fun and, and total drivel. Uh, so, what I tried to do was just by saying, well, let's look at what they did. So, who were the landmark prime ministers? Uh, and they're people who people subsequently, uh, premier subsequently either tried to be like or they wanted to deliberately distance themselves from, but none could escape their shadow. These are uh, uh, figures of extraordinary uh, agenda changing. Uh, they, they set the pulse, uh, that they make uh, the weather, uh, and they change the office. So Walpole, 21 years, and they're all there for a you know, very long time. Walpole picked the, the younger, Peel, who achieved so much, not least the police, um, Peelers, uh, or Bobbies is from Robert, uh, is Robert Peel, his first name. Uh, uh, Palmerston, the, the great PM of the great power state. It's Gladstone. Lloyd George, who did so much more than, than see the First World War to a successful, maybe protracted, but successful uh, conclusion in November 1918. Ackley, who set the country on the course, this whole post-war course. Thatcher, who changed that direction. and We haven't had one since. Now, Some people have got very upset that I didn't include uh, some people, Harold Wilson. But I mean, for goodness sake, what did Harold Wilson achieve with his landslide victory in 1966, uh, England winning the World Cup was not related uh, to it. Uh, There was no causal relationship. And the the, the great uh, liberalisation, social reforms were primarily the work of Roy Jenkins, the Home Secretary. You know, Blair, what did he achieve? Uh, the most powerful PM, Labour PM in Labour's history in terms of uh, election victories, uni- unity of the Labour uh, movement, uh, strong economy, clear sense the country was aching for change after 18 years of Tory rule. And he promised to reshape Britain. So in you know, that second category of Uh, of uh, important prime ministers who who made very important changes. In there is also Stanley Baldwin and Benjamin uh, Disraeli and Gray, the PM at the time of the 1832 Reform Act and the abolitionist labor in 1833. But, you know, it it is, um, that's how I do it. I, I, I rank them not by a meaningless parlor, Christmas uh, afternoon puzzle game of who do we think is best or who do we like most, but what do they actually do? I think there are nine agenda-changing uh, PMs uh, into which Churchill... Fits even though Churchill was more of a statesman, but, you know, a lot of them were were states people as well as being party people in that top tier. They were were taking some of the vestiges of the monarchy in acting as head of state and ruling in the interests of the whole country, not just their party, which uh, made them into uh, party leader and prime minister.
2: You interviewed for the radio series a clutch of uh, prime ministers, one of which was Tony Blair, who said something along the lines of prime ministers tend to start at their most popular and least capable and end at their least popular and most capable, which is a really interesting quote. Do you think the lack of formal training for prime ministers is a problem? Yeah, no, absolutely. So, so, uh,
3: but you can only train people willing to learn. And and I wonder how much these people are willing to learn. The, the, the adrenaline, the shots of adrenaline in that building, you know, it's so distorting, it's so head-bending that, you know, the truth is, uh, and he does understand it mostly, but not, I think, entirely, that it was vanity. Uh, he had changed the Labour Party, uh, new Labour, the getting rid of clause, He had made Labour into uh, a modern, electoral, uh, a relatively united uh, force. Uh, And he thought he could do the same to the country without studying how to do it. He had a notion in which uh, the sociologist Anthony Giddens was uh, responsible in part uh, of a third way. So neither capitalism nor socialism, but a third way. I mean, it's a bit like a lot of these slogans. Citizens charter, classless society, big society, um, uh, burning injustices, um, leveling up. I mean, what the heck do they mean? Uh, And these are very different from the agenda, the solid agenda that I was talking to you about, that Satya, love it or loathe it, had, that actually love it or loathe it, had. They need to learn how to do the job. The truth is that most come to power without knowing how to do the job and without knowing what they want to do, to be honest, to be cruel. Uh, The question then is, would they be willing to learn? And that's why they need to listen to people who know and understand how to do it, but not people like Dominic Cummings. Uh, And they tend to like people like Dominic Cummings, people who are brilliant uh, campaigners, brilliant minds. Uh, They know all the wizardry about polling and, and getting inside people's heads and getting them to vote for you. Uh, but that's a different process. Getting to the top of the mountain is very different from building a house at the top of the mountain.
2: We've talked a lot about the individual inside number 10. Do you think we need to think more about their partners, their wives um, or their husbands in some cases? Well, there have been two husbands, Dennis Thatcher and Philip May.
3: To Margaret Thatcher to 90 and uh, Philip May 2016 to19, the, 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 they've all, with very rare exceptions, had influential uh, figures in their lives, and um, we don't know, rather like we don't know what happened, although Peter Morgan, who wrote the uh, Crown, uh, uh, tells us knows about it, but we really don't know what happens between the monarch and the PM when they have their weekly audiences. We just do not know. We cannot know. We cannot know what happened between Clementine Churchill and Winston Churchill, or Violet Attlee and Clement Attlee, or indeed between Carrie Simmons and Boris Johnson. What we do know is that because of the very intimate nature of the relationship between the PM and Uh, their spouse and the secret nature of that. We know that the spouse or the the key relationship is the one on which they can totally trust. A PM cannot totally trust their own MPs or peers or cabinet. Um, Most of whom want their job and think they'll do it better than the PM. One can't totally trust the aides in number 10. Uh, who'll have their own agenda and will be fighting each other for access to the PM. The spouse is the one person on whom they can totally trust. By the way, the, the monarch comes in close to that, because that also is a privileged relationship where information about it, it does not come outside. So, yeah, of course it's interesting. You're interviewing me on the day that uh, obituaries have appeared of Kate Haste, who used to be married to Melvin Bragg, who was the great, the brilliant writer uh, about the the, the wives to the PMs uh, or the spouses to the PMs.
2: Brilliant um, uh, broadcaster. Um, So we know that they're very powerful. Finally, um, you spend time in the book considering the ways in which the role as it currently stands is flawed and how we might make it better. Um, I wondered if you could just talk us through the ways in which you think the role... Uh, is a challenge, and how it might be improved. Well, I do think we need to make it better.
3: Um, every PM since 1945 has been scuttled out for office. Ah, some will say, listening to this, what about Harold Wilson in 1976? That's the one exception where a PM wasn't scuttled out by defeat in a general election or by a coup from the Cabinet uh, or by illness. And yet and yet, Harold Wilson, who came back to power in March 1974, uh, having been out of office for three and a half years when Ted Heath was Prime Minister. He came back knowing that he didn't have the energy. He was already perhaps having early onset Alzheimer's. He was drinking far too much. His Principal private Secretary told me many years ago that it was pointless putting papers in front of him after 5 p.m. because he was just too subtle to, to, to take the right decision. So he couldn't have carried on. So they're all scuttled out of office. And in the radio series, uh, I make it out into a cricket match. It's a typical England batting collapse, one after another, coming in with the highest of hopes and extraordinary hyperbole on doorstep to be scuttled out in almost no time at all, one after the other. And yet they never learn. So I think we do need to strengthen the office. And we need the prime minister to be able to spend more time visiting all parts of the United Kingdom. We need them to spend more time in parliament. James Callaghan was the last... PM who who spent um, significant amounts of time in Parliament. Most PMs loathe Parliament, loathe MPs and the time they have to spend with them. They regard it as a distraction. We are a democracy. We're a parliamentary democracy. That is completely wrong. We need them to spend more time with their families and friends, being normal people, talking to (laughs) normal people. Uh, And to do that, you've got to have a deputy PM, equivalent, if you like, to a vice president or. Uh, or a, a prime minister if you in a presidential system, you have a prime minister, to pick up much of the routine staff. Uh, PMs uh, instead get sucked into being reactive, into crises, into firefighting, next day's headlines. They're not giving the sufficient time clarity to the long-term issues, the big picture, to thinking about forging the agenda-changing policies rather than just Vapid slogans that we discussed, or or just incremental, reactive changes. So all these big issues, and Britain's position in the world, are, are, are things that the prime minister needs to do. And what's happened is the chancellor has become more and more important. The foreign secretary has become less and less important. The PM's tried to be foreign secretary with sometimes disastrous results: Suez, uh, Iraq, uh, Libya in 2011. We need to reset the PM, reground them in the Treasury and the core work of they are first of of the Treasury, the Chancellor is second order of the Treasury, yet the Chancellor is the most constantly effective limiter damager of what the PM is trying to do for their own reasons uh, without any constitutional legitimacy at all uh, the PM needs to be head of a new body called the National Economic Security Council which uh, which looks after economic and social policy chairing PM chairing that not the uh, chancellor we need to have a proper deputy PM foreign secretary needs to be re-empowered uh, number 10 needs to be much more high powered not bigger. Uh, it's a resort of, of weak PMs who think you beef up number 10. Uh, absolute nonsense. It never works. The most successful PM since 1945. Attlee and, and Thatcher had small number 10s. you can't say, well, it was different then. I mean, if you're going to say these are people, Atlee looked after, <laughs> yeah, oversaw much of the world with, with the, the empire as an absolute height at the time. We need to have these changes to have a far better representation of, of the composition of the country, uh, ethnically, and socially and geographically, and in terms of gender. That would inspire confidence. We need to have people who challenge the prime minister, not cronies who've been your, your muckers on the way up in the dark, um, smoke-crowded rooms, filled rooms on, on the campaign trail. You need to have really discerning, high-grade people in there. And So you know, these are ways that would revivify the, the, the premiership. The premiership is aching for a, a reappraisal to make it efficient and effective again.
2: that was Sir Anthony Seldon. His book, The Impossible Office, is published by Cambridge University Press, and you can hear his Radio 4 series, The Prime Minister at 300, on BBC Sounds. That's the final episode in our series on British Prime Ministers. Thank you for listening. You can hear all previous episodes at historyextra.com forward slash
0: podcasts. Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Ben Hewitt, Jack Bateman and Brittany Colley. Join us tomorrow when I'll be talking to Francis Wilson about the controversial author D.H. Lawrence.